Hello, I'm Dylan. And I'm Keon. And I'm Maurice. And this is Zenithet Podcast, where Sulin finally has something to do, because this week we watched Gold. Written by Colin Davis. Directed by Brian Lighthill. And aired on November 30th, 1981. So this week we're joined by a new guest. Mm. Yeah. Maurice. This is the first time we've had a guest in the same time zone as us. That's all I'm going to say. I just wanted to say it made scheduling really easy Heck compared yeah. to all of our other crossovers where we've got to like navigate around time zones and <laughs> and free time. And yeah, this one yeah, was... What are you, what are you, you know, doing? That's why you guys have to operate. It's time to store at six, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we've recorded at some whack times <laughs> to uh, have make this midnight. work. <laughs> The one in the morning. Uh, isn't, isn't that standard for podcasts? You know what? I don't know. I actually genuinely don't know when other people record and how they do it, but we try to keep it at a reasonable time, except that one time we were like, you know what? We should record it like midnight. That'd be funny. And then we finished and we were like, it wasn't funny. Where's my coffee? Uh, <laughs> I'm almost certain. Well. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was a weekday as well. I'm almost certain you can tell which episode of Zenith that is too, because we just both sound like completely you know, over it. And I don't done. even remember what episode Neither it was. Neither do I. But I'm sure if you listen through all of them, you would be like, "Yep, this is the one." So what you're telling us all is you guys are morning people. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I on the other hand, the effects of sleep deprivation are similar to the effects of alcohol, so so I've heard. So I've experienced it. Yeah, I mean, they say it's more dangerous to drive tired than to drive drunk. Yeah. Well, you could be having that lovely, lovely reaction like the food on the Space Princess, you know. Could... <laughs> well, I was going to say, why not both tired and drunk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually found that quite convincing because it reminded me of any episode of The Love Boat. Ah, The Love Boat. I've watched one episode of that for some bizarre reason. <laughs> uh, my mother used to watch it, so I used to trip into it periodically. Um. Well, I mean, I walked into the living room and my parents were watching it and I sat down. I was like, what, what are we watching? Like, it's The Love Boat. And I'm like, what's The Love Boat? And they're like, it's The Love Boat. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. They're like, it's a boat where people fall in love. And I'm like... Is that is that the whole premise? Well, yeah, it's the it was the Pacific Princess. Do we see a similarity to a certain show we're talking about this week? I wonder. <laughs> I think there are a lot of parallels to be drawn between this episode and multiple other things, which sure. I sure. suppose is a good segue um, into. But before right. before we get into it, and sorry, Maurice, we didn't discuss this when we were sort of mapping this out, but the other guests we've had on have sort of introed with, you know, how they got into Blake 7 or where they first encountered the show and stuff like that. So do you want to sort of tell your your story or whatever? All right. Here's a tale. Um, here's back, a tale. I, I, did, I did not see the show. I read about it for years because where I lived, they never aired it. And then, oh my God, 20 years ago or so, um, I stumbled into some Series D episodes on KTEH uh, uh, down in San Jose. And uh, then I didn't see it again until maybe two years ago when I finally just found it. And uh, I watched the whole thing like in a binge. And... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, it, you know, so it was really interesting, you know, because you had heard a lot about it and then to see the reality of it. But uh, I, I want to say one thing that is funny, perhaps, because you, you guys have talked before about, I think, about how what series people like based on you know, where they came into the show. And although I came into Series D first, uh, it's not my favorite. <laughs> I kind of when I watched the whole show, I kind of really liked the first few seasons. And I felt like the change of format didn't do the show any favors in some ways. Um, and I say this as, you know, it's like I said, someone who first saw this series D uh, for me personally, the balance is off. Uh, without uh, Blake to counterpoint Avon, and I find Tarrant irredeemably irritating, <laughs> and I kept wishing he'd get offed, you know. Uh, but you know, that said, I, there are episodes of this series I like, and this episode in particular is one of them. Hmm. Yeah, that's this is this one's definitely up there. I think. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I think this is sort of where the series turns up a little more sharply towards the end. And I know you guys were staying away from spoilers, so I won't say any more than there's definitely an uptick at the end of the season here. And this is a, a pretty big step up from some of the previous ones. For sure. And, and that's interesting. I mean, a lot of I've heard a lot of, um, I guess, American fans, you know, talk about Blake Seven as sort of this elusive show that they knew about, but they never had they never got a chance to watch for years, you know. Well, I mean, it's not really available over here on DVD, uh, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you had to be by a public television station that would carry it, much like Doctor Who. But Doctor Who got carried a lot more, it seems like, than uh, Blake Seven did. Right. Well, Doctor I Who have, had have, twenty-six seasons. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I actually had a funny little uh, uh, Doctor Who-related thing that I, I used to work in the video game industry, and I wrote the script for a game called Echo the Dolphin, Defender of the Future, which was on the Sega Dreamcast, and uh, I wrote all the intro narrations for everything, and they got uh, Tom Baker to do it, so I have Tom Baker reading dialogue I wrote, huh. which is kind of funny. <laughs> well, that's actually pretty exciting, in my opinion. <laughs> I'll send you guys the audio. It's Very pretty nice. Definitely do. I'm going, Doctor Who is reading my stuff. Hey. <laughs> Why was Tom Baker never on Blake 7? Because oh, he would have overshadowed everyone else, right? It's... But still, like, he could have had his episode, you know? Well, you know, he was too busy fighting Cybermen somewhere, you know. Um, he was too busy not acting. So... <laughs> well, Tom sure Baker by... plays Tom Baker, right? Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure by this point, we were after Tom Baker's Series 18. I read this morning, actually, somebody compares Series A through C as Tom Baker Series 14 through 17 and Series D as Tom Baker Series 18. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> comparison, actually. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. The thing I wanted to come back to when I talked about, like, the different series, I think that it's like when we talk about, like, rock bands and sometimes, you know, the, uh, the sum is greater than the total of its parts. I kind of feel like with TV shows sometimes that even if... You know, Terry Nation's not the best writer or hasn't got the best plots. There's something about the the combination of the people who are working on it that you get a certain, you know, balance. And then when an element gets pulled out, it sort of throws things a little off kilter. And to me, that's what Series D feels like. It feels like once they lost the Liberator and they lost the format and you have, you know, without uh, Terry Nation there, it just sort of goes on this kind of odd little parallel trajectory that isn't quite <laughs> isn't quite to my my taste most of the time especially because of Tarrant who I didn't like even in series C <laughs> I just want to punch a little git <laughs> I think that's Hello. a recurring theme among yeah you won't have heard it at this point because it's not out yet but by the time this episode goes out it will be in sand we rail into Tarrant pretty, pretty hard pretty harshly 
Yeah, you know, I mean, all the characters, I mean, they're they're all kind of, uh, you know, snarky to one degree or another. But, you know, at least the other characters, I feel like they have moments where they're they're kind of appealing. And I don't ever find him appealing, except here where he's in that pretending to be stoned out of his mind. <laughs> That's the only time I've ever liked him. <laughs> Uh, that yeah, one was. I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah, Terrence not my not my favorite guy. <laughs> well, I no. think Terrence just uh, what's the word I'm looking I, for? I mean, Useless, I agree with at this point. I agree with Sergeant Reno's assessment of like you know call call a lesser replacement to a better character a Terrence. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so uh, I want to comment a little bit about uh, the uh, just the, the kind of story this is, you know, and, and uh, there are a lot of episodes that have a caper aspect to them, like Pressure Point. But just as Mission to Destiny was the show's Who Done It segment, Gold is a, as heist movie as Blake Seven ever got, and uh, that's the reason I jumped on the opportunity to join you guys on it because uh, I like capers. I got into them when I was hired to rewrite a heist film, which is currently stuck in development <laughs> hell. <laughs> Oh. And uh, I watch a lot of them as homework, and I'm a big fan of like the 1956 French caper Bob Le Flambeur, for instance. And you know, the old show Mission Impossible is a pretty fair example of how mm-hmm. you do caper stories on television. Uh, the basic rule being that you come up with this intricate plan, and when things inevitably go wrong, everyone has to improvise. And uh, that's sort of, to me, the tip off of what kind of show it's going to be when you see that. Uh, I don't know if you know who Ken Levine is. He's a screenwriter, yes. wrote for Cheers and a lot of other shows. Uh, he blogged in a review of uh, Ocean's 8 that some of the factors that go to a good caper movie are uh, the stings are ingenious. The person being robbed deserves it. The crew must pull off seemingly impossible tasks. Despite all the precision planning, things go wrong and the crew must improvise to avoid getting caught. And in short, nothing comes easy. Wow, that uh, must be why the original Ocean's yeah, Eleven sucks. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, to, to which I'll add, everything that happens has to be set up so that even when you reveal some big surprise at the end, the audience can go, aha, and realize they saw the setup, but they didn't put two and two together. Uh, yeah, that was my problem with Ocean's Twelve. Is that, <laughs> is that you couldn't actually do that in that movie because and, the setup is like a meeting that you never saw and, take place. And well, a yeah, couple of scenes that you never saw I'll take say, place. I'll say, go ahead. Yeah, no, no I, was, I mean, I was just, I'm just going to chime in with like, I think Ocean's 12 is an underrated masterpiece and the best Ocean's movie, the more I think about it. But I'm not going to go into, you know, why I think that. <laughs> Even though it doesn't follow most of the, uh, the rules you just laid out, honestly. Well, yeah, I mean, those, those are sort of general rules. But, you know, uh, one of the things that I saw Ocean's 8, and although that's a very entertaining film, it actually just does a bunch of bad things. Like at the end, there's this reveal of this thing that happened, which all the Ocean's movies do. But they don't set this up at all. It's just like, ooh, here's the magic cameo. And, you know, it's just it's sort of it, it just you don't see any traces of this being set up. There's only like one thing. It's just it's just bad. Just bad script writing. <laughs> Bad, bad. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. <laughs> well, I mean, my least favorite part of Ocean's 8 was, and this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first five minutes, is they just insinuate slash straight out state that Danny Ocean is dead. And from that point <laughs> oh, on, what? I was like, well, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and if they had done anything even at the end to imply that this is a um, – 
you know, a, a, a fake, you know, like when she goes back at the end. It, uh, anyway, spoiler alert. Anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole movie, they do the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where she's like, are you really dead, Danny? But like, then she's like, yeah, you're really dead. And it's like, okay. Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But well, yeah. So, so I want to jump in one last thing about Series D. And I know you guys, I think, discussed these in the past, but I wanted to chime in on the titles for Series D. Oh, yeah. I think they're technically very nicely done. I also think they are a pointless exercise because they don't communicate a damn thing about the show, except that it's in space and called Blake 7. Yep. What does a heads-up display have to do with anything? Well, I guess it does serve one purpose. Um, it eats up 60 seconds of airtime so they don't have to fill with story. <laughs> well, the title sequence is... It's I mean, underwhelming. Yeah, you know, I, I never actually thought of, about this, but it is actually uh, like decidedly more low effort than the first, the original one. You know, yeah, this, it's it's very technically well done, but it just doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's okay. <laughs> I'm watching us tilt around space. Okay. <laughs> well, I was reading uh, an analysis of Series D this morning by a blog called Watching Blake Seven. Oh, I've uh, seen that blog. Yeah, and. They did this analysis of Series D, and I think they had some really insightful comments. Actually, in that analysis, they talk about how this title sequence for Series D feels like the brief was just, we're a space show, come up with something. Uh, he talks a lot about how Series D feels very last minute, both in its scripting and in its execution, and, and that carries through right into the title sequence, which feels very slapdash oh shoot we're airing an episode next week what are we gonna do type thing <laughs> yeah it, it just feel kind of rudderless and that's sort of my general opinion of series d it's like maybe towards the end they start figuring out what the show is but by then it's <laughs> it's almost too late because it's going to be over in four episodes you know well, part of that is that uh, as we found out from someone commenting on our website the initial brief for this season being or an initial plan being that they're looking for all these experts and then they like drop any explicit mention of this, but they still keep looking for the experts. So it ends up right. being like this disjointed, uh, where's Waldo for the week? Like, <laughs> Well, that's a little bit like what happened on uh, the rebooted Battlestar Galactica where they had this whole subplot they'd come up with with the uh, one of the the colonies and they end up touching on it in one or two episodes. They ended up dumping it. They ended up re-editing the episodes to get rid of it all because it didn't work. <laughs> Great. So uh, I'll, I'll ask Ron more about that next time I run into him at a ball game. Uh, <laughs> I bump into the Giants games here at San Francisco periodically. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and I'm not giving anything away. He actually puts on his, uh, his Twitter feed when he's going to be at the ball game and you can go have a beer with him. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, we don't we don't run into anybody famous down here. We don't bump shoulders with anybody. <laughs> well, see, I don't even know where you guys are. You're probably on the planet Zerok, as far as yeah, I we know. might be <laughs> in the middle of the desert. We were this morning. This is just an aside. Look into the production mind of Zenith. Uh, we were having some audio problems, and Keanu was like, you know, we could just drive up there and record the episode up there. And I was like, that would be dedication. <laughs> well, you know, uh, buy you guys a couple of brewskis or, or some Soma, at least, anyway. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, Keanu was like, just message Maurice. We'll be there in eight hours. <laughs> Aha, now you're zeroing it in. So I, I guess the planet Z-Rock is in the Pacific uh, time zone. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, I guess wait. we should we should finally get into 
<laughs> how this episode actually starts because it starts with kind of a cold open almost actually with the Libu- with the Scorpio crew sorry getting guns ready and it's not really clear where they're going or why and they're just like we got to get these guns ready and Dana's like I better bring an extra clip yeah and, <laughs> and uh, although I, I like kind of uh, joining things in media res the fact that the set is so echoey and their boots are stomping around going clomp 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 on everything you can hardly hear half the dialogue because their footsteps are stepping all over it well not only that we get to see the amazing corner of the BBC studio where they shoved the gun rack which is just like a <laughs> nondescript white corrugated steel wall that's like it's still unclear as to how it actually fits into the Scorpio flight deck since we never see it on screen when they're on the flight it's, deck it's, it's like it's kind of behind you know everything just trust me on this. that's where well, it is what, what i find amusing in this scene is it sets up the whole non-involvement of villa in the entire episode when taron tells him to stay awake well apparently he fell asleep in the show because they don't give him a damn thing to do in this and michael keating seems really pissed about this too <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean, Villa is the thief, and it's a heist episode. How do you not use Villa in the yeah. big heist episode? Terrence should be the one still on the ship, especially since Terrence the pilot, and all they're having Villa do is the piloting well, stuff. Well, the the thing about this is, is you know, at the end you find out it was all just you know a ruse or whatever, multiple layers of of ruses, I guess. So I wonder, like, was Villa clued into all of this from the beginning? I don't know how he could have been, but maybe there was just some, like, instinct in Well, him. Avon, like, f- mentions a couple times throughout this episode that Villa doesn't trust Keller and Akila, and Villa's frequently right in his assessments. Right. Yeah. But they're docking with this, this big spaceship that has a big red star painted on the side. My first thought was, this looks like it was made by the Soviets. <laughs> I know. I thought that was a very odd choice to put a red star on there as opposed to like a blue one or any other color. <laughs> or like any other shape or anything. But this specific shape color combination is like, this is Soviet. That said, I do like the uh, uh, the uniforms of the space princess and what Keeler's wearing. They're so wonderfully tacky like you'd have on a cruise ship, you know. And uh, I, I just thought that was a lovely little production touch. Yeah, I, I enjoyed all of it. I especially liked the the Xerox logo. It was, uh, it was <laughs> the nice. Xerox logo that was like the letters. What was it? Z V K, I think, or Z B K. Z V P. Yeah, there, there are um, there. You can buy a shirt with that logo on it. Found it what? online. What? Yeah, I, that was my reaction too. You know? Yeah, uh, I really liked that they went the trouble of printing up all those ZVP logos and planting them all over the location. You know, because uh, it was just a nice little touch they didn't have to do. Uh, well, except later in the ship's hold, where one is laid rather unconvincingly on the uneven surface of the gold <laughs> crate, <laughs> where it's like stuck down with tape or something, and it's really obviously not attached. Well, I like the obvious. We only have five extras in this episode, so we're going to cover their faces when they're guards, uniforms, their visors <laughs> that like are full face visors that just completely well, obstruct their vision. <laughs> And, and, well, and then when they're they're on the space princess, there's a wonderful, uh, endlessly circular, same half dozen extras wandering around. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm almost convinced those are the same extras who play the, the guards. president's guards at yeah, the end, I who also play it. the ZVP guards. I wouldn't doubt any of that. <laughs> Which is why they had to cover their faces. 
<laughs> All right, so we want to go back. We were started. We we're jumping way into the details. We want to get back to the uh, beginning of the story and how this all proceeds. <laughs> well, Avon finally plot dumps some key information to us where this guy Keeler, who is quote an old friend unquote of Avon, yeah, but like all of Avon's old friends, he's you know a backstabber, a traitor, you know, they have a uh, complicated. Well, I mean, if everybody's trying to backstab you, maybe you need to look at the least common denominator <laughs> here, Avon. You just need to backstab them yourself. Preemptive backstabbing. <laughs> I mean, Avon kind of makes a reference to that when they get onto the spaceship and Kilo's like, oh, are these your friends? He's like, no, we're together for mutual convenience. I'm sure if I betrayed them, they'd not hesitate to just kill me, as they'll not hesitate to kill you if you let us down, Kilo. Yeah, funny how they didn't kill him at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, spoiler alert. Let's continue. <laughs> well, this is a this is an interesting scene that I want to dwell on for a moment because Avon kind of seems to explicitly state here that he doesn't really care about anyone on the Scorpio uh, except for himself. And he seems to believe that everybody else has the same belief, which seems contradictory to some of the things we've seen earlier this season. Seems contradictory to most of Series C. Mm-hmm. I mean, Avon, of course, I suppose that could be you know him just trying to convince Keeler of something. Look how bad these people are, and how bad we all are. Right. right. There is that moment later also where Tarrant and Sulin, and I'm mentioning, is it's sort of connected to this, where they they get mad at, at Keeler for killing um, an unarmed for killing the Doctor. Or no, yeah, the Doctor was who the was doctor? unarmed and not a threat, and. That seems odd, given their brief anger, but then acceptance of Avon just airlocking the Doctor in Star Drive. Well, you know, I, I mean, honestly, uh, this is really relates to something I have a note on, which is one thing that does bother me in stories like this is how many people they kill. Oh, sure, later on we find out some of the guards work for the Federation, but there's a line between killing enemy troopers in a revolution and quite another thing when they're offing guards employed uh, by some, what is ostensibly a business. I know they try to draw a distinction when Keeler guns down the guard, I mean the guard, the doctor um, that you mentioned, but that dodge aside, they're killing people in the course of committing a robbery, a robbery, not a revolutionary action. They're just being thieves, murderous thieves. And that's the one thing about these episodes I don't care for. They are a little trigger happy in this episode. And I noticed that, too, because Sue Lin is just running around like it's a kid in a candy store. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Got you. Got you. A kid with a gun in a candy store. <laughs> like, Sue Lin's racking up the high score here and and. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. That's a criticism I've seen a lot for for this episode just online is like, or or, or really some of these Series D episodes actually is that people are like, you know, they kind of kill people willy-nilly and they don't have as much of a cause anymore and stuff like that. Rebels without a cause. Again, that's where I saw, like I said, it feels a little rudderless because it's like, you know, uh, I mean, I realize that most of them are criminals and stuff, but it just feels like... Like it's like okay, well, okay, we're we're on we're on the mission now, and if people die, they die as long as they're holding a gun. <laughs> I have a Drago and Rocky Four. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> there you go. There's a first Blake Seven comparison to Rocky Four. <laughs> well, this series D that would be Rocky series episode Rocky. D, right? Yeah, I, I see. I see the connection. B approximately around the time of Rocky 3, 4, I think. <laughs> I think that belongs on the D list. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Yvonne plot dumps what they're about to do. 
what they're planning on doing. Yeah, Kilo's come up with this quote ingenious unquote and, plan. And as of right now, it's not all that complicated. It gets more complicated later on. There were points in this episode where I had to go like, all right, wait, wait, what, like what's going on here? You know, maybe that's just me. Well, you know, part of it is they also don't uh, spell out everything. So like later in the episode, there are a couple of things that happen that we just sort of get dropped in and we don't hear the planning for it, you know. Yeah, well, um, well later, yeah, Avon's like, we're going to go with Kilo's plan as it stands. I'm like, wait, what is Kilo's plan, though? I don't think you told us. Wasn't it just to, to sell the gold for $6 billion? Yeah, but like apparently Kilo had this whole plan in how to steal it and to fake an <laughs> illness to get the ship. Yeah, they and don't like, do They didn't they spell any of that yeah. out. I'm like... What is Keeler's plan, Avon? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the illness thing, I guess, is one of those things that goes wrong on the caper where they have a change in the doctor. So now he has to fake this illness instead of her pretending she's ill. But it does sort of come in rather clumsily in terms of the way the script is constructed. You know, they don't say earlier, OK, she's going to fake this thing. So it's that tricky line of surprising the audience as things are, re- are revealed and mm-hmm. maybe giving too little detail. Uh, you sort of have to find that line between those two things. Yeah, there's definitely that line between giving too little detail and giving too much that they really needed to straddle better, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what they're doing now is... Um or, well, Keeler, I think, reveals that Planet Xerox, which is, I think, one of the biggest gold producers in the galaxy. Avon calls it the gold planet. Yeah. yeah, they say, actually, that it's the last place that still has gold. Every place else is mined out. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then Keeler mentions that gold is still used in backwater transactions <laughs> that don't have computer systems. And I was like, wow. That's... But it's, yeah, it's, it's obviously still really expensive, and their Keeler wants to make a profit. Well, I mean, this this line mentioning that it's mined out everywhere is, is preemptively undermining the criticism that gold only holds value because it's scarce. So, in a galaxy or in a in a science fiction or space hopping adventure where you have all these other planets, gold must kind of necessarily be much less scarce than it is now, which in turn would lower the value of gold. So. You have Kilo coming in like, it's mined out everywhere, it's only on Z-Block, which is <laughs> artificial scarcity being introduced just to make gold still valuable in this universe. You know, speaking of Xerox, the one thing I noticed is that when we see Xerox from space, it's a sparkly gold planet. Did you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a literal gold planet. It's literally sparkly gold. <laughs> then like they land got- on it and it looks like they used a water treatment facility to film <laughs> in. <laughs> Well, you know, at least that adds some production value because it is supposed to be like a, a, a fake thing, like a vegetable processing plant, you know. Uh, in fact, I'm curious what the location actually was of where they filmed that. I'm sure a certain uh, Twitter feed could probably tell us that. <laughs> I when he what gets to Series D in three years. <laughs> well, okay, I'll get my, uh, my TARDIS and I'll jump ahead and come back and tell you guys. Or when he releases that physical book, did you guys hear about that? There's going to be a... A physical copy. Oh, is that uh, actually going through? Because remember when we talked about it with him on Rescue, he was like, there's a lot of legal rights limbo stuff that's going to be worked uh, out. I mean, but uh, yeah, this, this was after that. I mean, he posted like, you know, uh, coming soon type thing. Hmm. Yeah, I would love a book like that, especially if you could license it, because I have a couple of friends who did. I don't know if you guys saw that book that came out a few months ago called Star Trek Lost Scenes. 
I heard about it. I didn't uh, see it's, it. Personally. It's an amazing book. Uh, these two guys I know have restored like thousands of film clips, and they made a book where they have all these photos of you know behind the scenes stuff on the sets, much like the uh, the uh, making Blake Seven Twitter feed does. But they've got them in an officially licensed book with all this text and script excerpts and everything, and it's just an amazing, amazing book. And a Blake Seven book like that, I would. I would kill Servaland for. <laughs> I, Yikes. I would kill Servaland anyway, but. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're Avon, you must kill her yourself. You did not do it when you have the perfect opportunity. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. Paul so. Darrow has some <laughs> solid gold lines wow. in this. Wow. <laughs> solid gold dancers, yeah, once again. <laughs> I loved Paul Darrow in this. He's playing unhinged Avon. You can just tell he's having such a great time with it. I mean, in the context of the show, I don't know if, how I feel about unhinged Avon, but watching Paul Darrow play unhinged Avon uh, no, is one of the greatest things I've ever and, seen on TV. And, and this is an instance of him doing it well without, like, stepping on other people's, yeah. you know, time or, or lines or whatever, you know. Well, I also love him. You can see him just loving that line. What's the snag? <laughs> I mean, that, and then later on, he's like, but which president? <laughs> and just, yeah. There's so many Avon lines in this that are just like, <laughs> I just love it. And the final shot of this episode, too, is like by far my favorite scene of Paul Darrow acting in this show. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I also think that it's, you know, you, you sort of see the, uh, I think he's enjoying the format change here. They're doing something different, you know, and you can sort of see him just like really, uh, I would I'd be interested if he ever commented on this episode because he looks like he's having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looks like he's loving it. And there are moments in this where he goes like full Clint Eastwood <laughs> holding his gun like a pistol, which I want to talk about later when we get to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, related to that, uh, I also think this is the episode where Avon smiles more than any other episode. Almost, <laughs> it's like a snake, you know, those little fake smiles he aims at Keeler. Uh, but <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, he looks really unhinged here. <laughs> I mean, he's just loving it. Keeler keeps calling Avon old friend, and Avon's like, we're not friends, Keeler. Well, it's, is, it's yeah, it would have been almost more interesting if he just never replied. And it's just like the from one side, it's like that, that just says it right there. No, we're not. <laughs> well, so Keela explains this plan with a the, the Zero go- processes. The yeah. gold. they turn it into black gold. Yeah. Oil. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, that was like, I couldn't figure out where I heard the term black gold before for the whole thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's oil. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I said black gold, Texas tea. Right. Texas tea. <laughs> Good old Texas tea, my boys. But basically, he, right. he wants to get to the gold before it's processed, hack into the system, which is a full Avon, like, that's Avon specialty, hack into the system, modify it so that the gold doesn't get turned black, steal the gold, and then t- turn the system back, and then everybody will just assume the gold got turned black. And then once it's on the ship, it's basically theirs because there's only one guard who guards it because it's literally useless in its black form so they don't send anybody with it plus it's disguised as vegetables so great you know the vegetables pass their ship date apparently with since they're black <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean when you- uh, i mean i actually liked i like this whole setup again it's like a little the intricate kind of plot and you have all these things that can go wrong but all these things you know oh it sounds logical we do a b c d but then any one little thing that goes wrong then you have to improvise to salvage it right i agree yeah i really really enjoyed this setup 
And of course, things go wrong immediately. Well, they get to Z. Z rock, Z rock. Just think Z rocks, but with rocks. I keep thinking there's a V in the middle because there's a V in the middle of the logo. It's a Zeron very planet. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't, I, I don't think that's a V. I think it's just like a shape. I think yeah, it's it a Z P. Yeah, it might be Z rock, Z rock something P. I don't Pineapples. know what it is. But. <laughs> Dull Pineapple Company up in here. <laughs> they could have called it Elod, and that would have been dull backwards. That would have been social commentary. <laughs> yeah, that would have been social commentary and probably would have angered quite a few people. <laughs> so they don't tell Keeler about their teleport system. <laughs> yes. But yeah, they just. This was funny. I, I, you know, I really thought that also the casting on Keeler was really, really good. I mean, it, when, when you have a guest star who's really just a good actor, you know, and, and playing this kind of role, it really elevates the material. Oh, yeah. Uh, the guy's playing Keeler. Sure. Nails it. I looked this guy up. I mean, you know, I, I, I knew his name last night. Though I don't I, remember it anymore. I'll pull it up for you right now. Roy, Roy Kinnear. Kinnear. Kinnear, yeah. Yeah, he's great, uh, and uh, you know he's just his physicality is really good. His his uh, he plays a lot of really good uh, emotions, you know, and he's got this kind of false bravado about him. But when the cracks show, you really see through to this kind of sniveling coward that he really is. And and I thought he was like just great, and uh, you know that that kind of actor, I really love it when the show gets it. Um, I mean, the show often had really good actors, but he just really stands out. And it's partly the part, but also just his, he really sells that performance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I agree, too. He's definitely, I mean, you can buy him as a coward, but the way he's playing it, you can tell this. There's wheels turning in his head there when he's sitting there thinking. Yeah, yeah, especially because they, they actually, the director, I'll give him credit for you, because sometimes he holds on Keeler's expression when other characters are talking, and you can see the wheels turning. You know, like there's even a place where near the end where he's uh, where Avon's off camera talking and you just look at and they just fix on Keeler's face for, you know, a good long shot. And you see sort of the desperation. You can just see it turning in his head and it's great. Well, yeah, so this plan immediately goes wrong because Avon and the pals teleport down without telling Keeler. He's like, how did you get in? I was going to let you into the fence. And they're like, don't worry about it. Let's just go. And they go, and they basically everything's going well right until they get to the gold room where somebody triggers the alarm. And yeah. Avon and Sulin are like, well, we're doomed. There's a bomb that's going to go off of some sort. That's what it seems yeah, to be. The, the, this whole sequence is kind of interesting because I, I like the idea of what they're trying to do, but you know, it's. Uh, I want to sort of jump back a step to when they first come down to the planet because uh, you know the, the the start the start of that sequence where they start with the shot of the chopper taking off is really pretty good, and I like it when they manage to put spaceships in a shot with live action and make it actually work because mm-hmm. they rarely did it, you know. So it immediately adds this sense of scope and, and everything. But uh, right after that, when Keeler ducks the guards. The shots are a mess. They cut from one angle on Keeler to another shot, barely different. It's a classic jump cut. And then Avon and Pretty One Sulin teleport down. There's this really blatant dissolve where Keeler's head moves. They should have been yeah. able to do that in a single shot and they sta- if they'd staged it right and had Mr. Kinnear managed to freeze for the teleport. But it's just awkward. And uh, 
and what, one thing I do love it when you mentioned that thing about they come down is like Sulin's snarky shortcut explanation. You know, you know the how do you get here shortcut, uh, and I love it when they don't explain things needlessly. Uh, one thing I hated on the show early on was they were so glib about using the teleport and telling others about it. Blake's like, "It's a teleport. We have a teleport," <laughs> and. Um, you know, it's they ought to have tried to keep that a secret for as long as possible because so long as the, your enemies don't know about it, they wouldn't expect it. Right. The moment you know your enemy has a way to pop in almost anywhere, you're going to put guards where you'd never put them otherwise. You know, the reveal of the teleport to the Federation on Servaland should have been a huge setback. And it's just one of these, oh, teleport. So I love the fact that they just sort of ducked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Blake was never, you know, the, the brightest bulb in the in the box well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah no blake, no totally. blake was a little too giving of information i mean loose lips sink <laughs> ships and uh, blake apparently never heard that statement because he was just running around like we would teleport maybe because blake was trying to build up his mythical image of himself sorry go ahead <laughs> oh that was it i was just saying the teleport the teleport let me let me tell you about our teleport it's wonderful uh <laughs> sitting in a bar drinking huh let me tell you about this teleport we have yeah. Uh, so, you know, now they're down there and, you know, when they go in, we talked about the guards and killing the guards and all that thing. But, you know, the first thing they do is Keeler has that line, you know, uh, when he goes up to the guard, the first guard they see he goes, they're with me. Well, you know, just moments earlier, he told Avon, they think I went on on that chopper. I'm no safer here than you. Well, if that's the case, he should expect the guards might just gun them down. And given that, why does the guard just stand there, then try to shoot them in the back? It's just super clumsy and awkward and nonsensical. Yeah, I was wondering that too, actually. I, I got the impression at this moment, I and mean, maybe looking back on this later doesn't quite add up, but you know, in this moment I was like, all right, so Keeler is not telling them something. Mm-hmm. Um, which he's not, but I don't see how it like all plays into. Oh yeah, I I think you might be right about that because then he does have like this security access code and stuff, which doesn't make any sense if he's just a person on the ship. Why would he have an access code that would work on this facility? You right. Know? Well, right. you find out that like he's setting them up. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that's a subtle clue there. So the, I'll forgive it that. But then I want to add on after that we're talking about the, this action. So then they go along, and then they, you know that action's awkwardly shot, and then it gets worse because Avon shoots the second guard. Uh, I don't. Yeah, and then uh, then there's that bit with um, uh, when Sulin you know guns down the other two guards, and it's so awkwardly edited. It's not even clear what happens. I had to watch it several times to realize what's going on. Cause they have a guard pop up here and then she sort of shoots sideways and we see this guy get hit and then she turns. It just is, I had to rewind it three times to figure out what the hell was going on. Cause it's just so <laughs> poorly executed. Yeah. And you're talking about the moment when the, the guards jump the up and then it looks like Avon and Sulin shoot the guards, but then Avon turns to Keeler and he's like, Sulin got both of them. Right. Yeah. It was just yeah. Before that, yeah, that whole bit where she shoots both of them, it's just it's just so poorly edited in the angles and stuff. It looks like the same guard from two different angles. Actually, two different guards. It's just a mess. So I don't I don't think this director was particularly good at action stuff. As I watch this episode, it it didn't seem to be his strong suit. No, maybe yeah, maybe you're right about that. Yeah. yeah. Seems like he's winging it about as much as we wing these podcasts. I like that moment in the airlock. Hey, though. I, I'm prepared. I have coffee. <laughs> I don't. I do not have breakfast before these podcasts. Well, you know, that's. I understand low blood sugar helps the intellect. <laughs> Does it? 
Well, at least that's what, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyway, yes, yeah, so there's all this awkward action and, and that's fine. And then they, uh, they go down there and there's the, they go down to the processing plant and, and they have this whole business about having to go in and have this, the radiation and, and Keeler makes some comment about changing a red leaf to a white leaf or something. I didn't quite understand what that dialogue meant. Yeah, I didn't get it. I think it was, they were just going to deactivate the, the bomb security system. Yeah, yeah, if I just seen him holding any little a tool or a card or anything, so I knew what he was going to do. But there's just sort of weird, non nonsensical line. You know, you don't even say a red wire to a white wire. It's just I, I couldn't understand it. But it doesn't matter. It's a small small particular there. Mm-hmm. And they move on from this pretty quickly. Actually, you know, when they set this whole thing up, I was like, all right, the entire episode is going to be this operation. And right. I, I mean, it is, but like things go so wrong here. They, you know, they have to do something else. So I was like, okay, you know, and I'm sort of more interested now because <laughs> Tarrant yeah. and Dana actually teleport down as well when things start going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're running to save Tarrant and sorry, Avon and Sulin. And I'm so used to Tarrant and Sulin being together. Uh, Avon and Sulin. And I don't really, I was unclear about what exactly happens here. If it was like an explosion or a radiation leak. It was or- just, yeah. yeah. Well, what happens is when they describe it later on, they say there were two guards that jumped them. And, uh, you know, um, there's, uh, what was I going to say about that? Uh that uh that that yeah there's, there's two guards and then of course they can I, so i never what i was gonna say can i just say it's super obvious what happened here when <laughs> when they think the avon and sulin are dead because Kaler says there were two guards and terrence says we found you in the corridor Kaler. there were no guards uh but he yes. and dana saw remains and <laughs> two she bodies. says something like two bodies i think the radiation hasn't left much yeah i mean come on the answer is playing as the eyeshadow on dana's face <laughs> even as they discuss it one of them ought to have gone just a tick it makes our heroes look really kind of thick okay well Tarrant is, is pretty thick. thick and Tarrant's <laughs> one who, kind of sees an opportunity here to take charge now that avon's out of the picture yeah he jumps on this real quick <laughs> Oh, yeah. And since when does radiation dissolve bodies? I mean, really powerful <laughs> radiation can, but it'd have to be like Kilo would be vaporized as well. Like there'd be no way that Kilo would yeah, would be I mean, the bodies would be if the radiation was that powerful. But, I mean, it was that powerful. We should have watched Ter- uh, Terrence uh, Perm wilting as they're discussing. Yeah, that too. The bodies themselves would still be radioactive if it truly was radio- radiation and D- D- Dana and Tarrant would have been at High risk for cancer or radiation poisoning maybe, themselves. Maybe they have cancer now. You know, <laughs> twenty. If they die in the last episode from well, like cancer, at least it's not cancer with her little mechanical crab spider thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me just try and defend this decision for a minute. Wasn't this just Tarrant? This is the impression I got. This was Tarrant and and Dana just trying to give Keeler like a scare. You know, like we know what happened, Keeler, and you did this, and and. No, lying through my, their teeth. My about impression it, was that Terrence and Dana fully believed this. That line specifically from Dana about the radiation not leaving a lot of their body, like, is what made me believe it because Keeler wasn't in that scene at all. Keeler was knocked out when she said that, and she said that to Terrence. Like, it was just those two, and there was no reason for her to say that if they were trying to like bluff Keeler into anything. Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe she, maybe she found out what was going on between those two scenes, and they started like you know. I mean, especially Keeler. since when Avon contacted Scorpio, Phil was like. 
we thought you were dead. And Avon's like, teleport us. Villani's like, but you're dead. And Avon's like, Villa, teleport. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's an indication that, you know, they don't know what's going on, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, kind of going back to a, a step there on on that. Um, there is also something here that that I really bugged me. You know, when when we first find out that oh, surprise, surprise, that <laughs> Avon and Sulin are still alive. You know, they're commenting on that, and Avon says uh, about those two guards, their uniforms were perfect, but the guns were not standard issue. Didn't you notice? So I was thinking to myself, well, I didn't notice that they looked <laughs> yeah. different, and none of the other guards fired their weapons in close up, so there wasn't even a different sound to hint at this so when i watched it again i saw their guns were different looking uh, but the photography and the editing and the sound doesn't give you any chance to notice this and it really should have you know and this is the thing i said about setting things up where the audience goes oh yeah i didn't you know that mm-hmm. gun was weird looking and then you think oh the other guys had those trooper type rifles you know and then on top of that what really cheesed me was that avon noticed it instead of sulin the gunslinger yeah and I hate it when writers give a popular character too many abilities and too much insight at the expense of the others. I mean, it happened a lot with Spock on Star Trek, so much so that he'd sometimes just conclude things without even looking at his instruments. He was stronger than humans in thin air and heat and in a blizzard. You know, he becomes like a Swiss army knife of abilities and it gets boring. And the same thing with Avon. They just sometimes give him too much insight in things that it should be way outside of his bailiwick. And there are other characters there who should be the ones saying this stuff. Avon is the golden child of Blake Seven, though, if you really think about it. Yeah. Paul Darrow, well, I mean. Uh, so let's talk to Chris Boucher about that. <laughs> <laughs> that is, and that's actually something uh, I'll, I'll touch on it now because, you know, because you bring it up. And that's something I wanted to touch on, like, at the very end of this podcast is that's probably one of my biggest criticisms of this show is that there's so many opportunities for other characters to have their moment to shine. Yet Avon is, you know, front and center most of the time. Right. Yeah, yeah. So so I want to add just on the end of this is that, you know, uh, and I forget exactly where he says this, but there's that point when Avon's saying that Keeler, uh, someone is using Keeler to get to them. You know, he says it's the only logical explanation. And I thought, hmm, how mysterious. Who could possibly be after them? Perhaps, and this is a wild stab, someone with um, an affinity for high heels, eyeshadow, and treachery. I mean, that was the thing that you you – you never. You, there's a big. It's supposed to be a big reveal who it is. Uh, but the instant that she stepped onto the planet at the end of the episode, and <laughs> there's a shot heels? just of her high heels, it's like I know who that is. I know exactly who that is. Well, there's that also. See, I mean, even if you haven't, even if you, you know, there's the scene where like Avon leans over the the panel or whatever, and he's like, Keeler was employed by the former president. But then he goes, yeah. but which president? <laughs> like I wonder, maybe the only one who's important. Well, there was that other president when Servalan was just Supreme Commander and not President, you know, back in Series A and B. Just just go back to a simpler time. (laughs) Well, you know, and, and, you know, uh, I think you guys have said this before, and and I I kind of agree with this, you know, and this is a a problem with shows with recurring villains. I mean, yeah, it's really obvious Servalan's behind this from the moment, you know, that they say, who could it be, you know, (laughs) because who else would it be? Travis. Yeah, Travis. (laughs) There, that would have been a twist. You know, at least the script makes clear that she planned the whole thing when Avon says it wasn't hard to work out, but it wasn't meant to be was it uh, which is hanging a lantern on it admittedly but at least they don't insult us by making it seem like it should be this complete surprise you know mm-hmm. 
But again, in this rebooted series CD universe, minus Blake, where Servalan is the yin to Avon's yang, there's this ridiculous quote, he doesn't know you as, as well as I do, you know, close quote, who does dialogue? I mean, ugh. And hey, after Sand, I think Taryn might know her more um, yes. intimately than even Avon. <laughs> there is that. I forget what, what he actually says, but there's a line from Avon once they get back onto the Scorpio. And it's something about Servalan. And then there's this, this shot for like three seconds of Terrence's face. And he, he just kind of like looks <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah, no, there was this sort of, yes, I know where you what you did. <laughs> right. And, you know, and yeah, so I have a problem with it being Servalan behind this. She shoehorned in the story for no real gain, except they have this lame banter at the end and she feels so unnecessary you know and for god's sake just shoot her even if avon won't dana ought to put a bullet between her eyes without a second thought <laughs> yeah i mean uh, you we know. jumped way ahead but that was my biggest problem with that scene was that dana's just standing there dana yeah. who two weeks ago three weeks ago basically threw a temper tantrum on scorpio because they beamed her up before she could shoot servlan right. is just standing there watching <laughs> avon talk to Servaland and then they yeah. leave. Yeah, you know, I have one last comment about Servaland that I'm going to save until you guys have seen the last episode oh because uh, because I don't want to spoil anything. And even Three if weeks. I say this one little thing, I'm not going to. I'm not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> Three weeks. So we'll hold on to that one. All right, well, so now they've they've uh, we we found out they're still alive, and this is when they have they. This is, I think, at the point right where they they decide they're going to go ahead with the plan. Yeah, they're going to go ahead with Keela's plan as it stands, and then Villa says, "Or as it falls." <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, might I say that it was, it was, I thought it was funny that finally, you know, when they get back to the ship and uh, they're talking about how their dead friends are, you know, what happened, and then finally Villa gets a few lines. It's like, yeah, I'm okay. I, I think I count Villa's lines in this episode on two hands. Well, he, gets uh, his- he, did, he does have a great zinger. He has the best line in the show when Keeler says, "I've got a criminal record." <laughs> Hasn't everybody? <laughs> I was going to mention that because that was a solid line. That was yeah, a solid some, line. From there were some great lines in that. And, you know, at least they gave him that to make up for the nothing that he gets into in the rest of the episode. <laughs> the thing is about like this, though, is whenever Villa is the one to sort of maybe get shafted for the episode, I'm I'm more OK with it because, you know, he's had his his moments. He's had his episodes. But he's if been there was in the show any the entire episode. time. That would be a villa episode. It's the one where they're doing a heist. Yeah, I guess. But at the same time, I also liked the idea that Villa was like clued into everything that was going on. He's like, I'm not getting involved in this crazy nonsense. Yeah, well, okay, that's fine. And I agree with you. That's fine if he, because he has this experience. But they don't even let him say that. It's earlier in the episode <laughs> when they say, oh, Villa doesn't trust you uh, this. Well, why can't Villa say that? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. So, so I want to uh, take a quick aside because we're, now we're, you know, we're getting to the point where they go back onto the... Uh, the space, space princess, princess and everything and um, um the the thing that uh i wanted to say about the production design on this episode and uh you know it's it's it, it's kind of ambitious there's a lot of sets in this episode compared to some of the other ones you know they have the location on the planet they have the other planet at the end they have the space princess you know so the, you know and it 
it's good, but it almost but doesn't quite come off. You know, uh, I think some of the Space Princess sets are pretty nice, uh, especially the corridor and the storage compartment. <laughs> but at the same time, this is the most kitchen aisle episode of Blake <laughs> Seven, where so much of the set dressing is super obvious plastic trays and drawer organizers and disposable aluminum baking trays. Yeah, in the very first shot of Keeler, there's a column of them stuck on the wall and they look like exactly what they are. You know, and they're not even straight. They're crooked, <laughs> you know, and, and there's an like art to greebling a set with found objects. Uh, the, the trick is you have to do something simple that disguises what they are, you know, and, and put them in places where it feels like they serve some purpose. But here it looks like somebody just stapled gun columns <laughs> into the walls. And, uh, you know, it almost works on some of the sets like the cargo hold, but there's no attempt to hide the seams and the edges or do anything that would break it up just enough so that your eye doesn't go right to it and go lasagna tray <laughs> well i mean it's the bbc having a budget of no more than like five pounds a piece of yeah. lint and a paper clip <laughs> well yeah yeah and that's it but it, you i've seen things like this done on other shows and it's just like you you fiddle with the edges you put a piece of pipe over the seam you do anything just to break the obvious thing that your eye goes to and says that's what that is you know where like uh, the uh the location for the xerox mine setting is way better even though it's the occasional obvious bin stuck to the odd wall and it's but it's not as haphazard looking I mean, but I can almost imagine like the, the set designer like going into the BBC cafeteria and like looking around shadily as, to make sure no one's looking. And he just grabs all the lunch trays and runs away. Oh, like, well, no, that's that's so typical. I mean, on the original Star Trek show, a lot of the things you see on the walls of the ship are, are uh, styrofoam packing things they found in dumpsters. They painted red and glued to the wall, you know, because <laughs> it was an interesting shape. I mean, the great thing about styrofoam is you can cut it into any shape you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like even if they just done something like where they had like put a little, you know, uh, a sticker dot on each of these things in a certain place, just anything that just breaks it of your eye goes that little thing instead of the thing that it is. Anyway, I understand low budget filmmaking. I I worked on some, but it just still just I'm going I'm constantly distracted by, ooh, look, a drawer organizer. <laughs> yeah, but no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I want to also really quickly jump back to when they they talk about loading up the space princess, you know, when, when, uh, Avon and Sulin are going to get back up there, uh, onto, you know, from the, uh, the planet, you know, there's this whole business of the space princess loading on Xerox. I mean, did it land? It sure doesn't look like it can land. And even, and if it did, why is there the chopper that Keeler was supposed to be on? I, I could that made no sense to me at all. I couldn't follow what was supposed to be going on there. Uh, I was under it, the impression that it orbits the planet and then it the ship comes up, loads it, and then it flies to the next planet and then the ship comes up, picks up the stuff and goes down. Yeah, I just like didn't understand why Keeler would go down on one shuttle, go back up and you know, it just seemed needless complication, you know, that that didn't add anything to the story. Well again, Keeler's definitely setting them up, so Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, how much yeah, of that maybe, is standard procedure and how he, much of it is just show? He might be getting his stories mixed at this point and, you know, trying to cover for himself and creating, creating this entire web of yeah, lies, uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm... <laughs> yeah, I, okay. I, I'll accept that. <laughs> and, sustained. <laughs> sustained. Well, so they go back to the Space Princess and we, we, kinda, this plan we where, pick up bits and pieces of this plan 
where like Dana was originally going to fake being ill, but the previous doctor who was like a drunken fool got replaced by a new doctor. So they've actually got to make her ill, (laughs) which they mentioned that right when they get back to the space princess, but you don't really see the payoff or why they're doing that until much later. Yeah, you know, one thing that I I noticed watching this is, you know, when when they first come on the ship with all the stoned passengers, uh, which they don't start off super stoned. I noticed that, too. At first, when I rewatch it, they seem a little more sharper. And then they're kind of, oh, hi. No, I don't know where the office is the next time we see them. They've been eating the food. That was a nice little a little grace note there. But, you know, once the cruise starts, you know, and Avon goes into Keeler's office, I noticed that, you know, the locker he uh, opened. Uh, he opens that locker. Uh, no, no. When the, he had opened the locker earlier with Sulin and said guns, and she says useful. And then he comes in, and the, the locker is still open, and it stays open when Sulin and Tarrant come in. <laughs> and then later, when the the space princess officer comes in, and Tarrant and Sulin are hiding, it's closed. Yeah, okay, that's a continuity nitpick, uh, and maybe the result of an edit. Uh, but the whole business with the locker and the guns is a pointless loose end. You, you know the principle of Chekhov's gun should apply mm-hmm. here. <laughs> if you're going to introduce a gun, then someone has to use it. Why do we mention guns and leave a locker open and then never go back to it? I mean, I think it might explain where Kilo got his gun from, right? Because his gun looks pretty different from the Scorpio guns. And he hadn't had a gun until this point. So I guess the question would remain like, where did Kilo get the gun? It was like, okay, well, there's gun locker on the sort of yeah, flight deck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but just again, I think some of this is just the clumsiness of the way it's directed, and uh, possibly there are some you know minor bits that got edited out, and that might you might have seen Keeler take the the thing, but you know, it just is one of those things that just jumped out at me because I'm always super aware, like when they make a a point of saying something that's you know like a prop that they're going to use, and then they don't use it. You're like, all right, right, and the, the idea that this might be where Keeler got the gun, this this might go back to your point earlier Maurice of like how do you walk that fine line between you know giving the audience too much maybe making them feel stupid or, or something like that or, or like giving them too little you know yeah yeah it's, it's that whole thing there's a, there's a principle in drama where you want the audience to almost figure it out just by and the characters get to there like a beat before they do you know right and that's when you feel satisfied. You go, oh, yes, that makes sense. But, you know, you didn't quite come to the conclusion. And and this episode kind of hurts because there's too many cases where that uh, that that doesn't go go through. So, yeah, so they're they're do, doing the the thing and they've got the, the intricate plot. And then they have to go into the uh, the hold and, and do the whole bit about the getting at the black gold. This was and, the most exciting part of the episode to me when they're in this. Uh, the hold and you know they they're 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 on camera and they they manipulate the security cameras and stuff like that yeah yeah i I agree with you i thought that was really pretty tense but it could have even been tenser you know uh and this is a place where the staging i thought hurt the production in a small way with that whole business that starts when they come in with the gurney because the first time we see it is in the lift with the that computer cube thing sitting on it Mm -hmm. but the way the framing is it looks like a shelf in the elevator (laughs) 
I only put together what it was on the rewatch. The way it should have been staged is we should have seen them push the uh, gurney in or out of the queue, uh, out of the lift with the cube on it, so that we we don't so we don't wonder like why is that cube sitting there conveniently in the foreground, <laughs> you know? And then Avon wheels it in later after he Keeler walks in with the cube, and I'm going, uh, what? I had to go re- rewind it to figure out what the heck actually happened there. I mean, I'm um, kind of curious what the actual purpose of those cubes are because if you notice on the flight deck, there's like dozens of them next to the monitor, like yeah. you know where Tarrant and Sulino watching on the my on the guess monitor, is they were just like secure, they were like video recorders, you know, because they use it to play back video. So they're probably all the security uh, camera possibly they record uh, possibly they record all the security footage on those cubes. Well, you know, because you know VHS tape is much too big. So yeah, <laughs> well, spinning red use cube. cubes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah. So when they get into that, that whole thing, that whole thing with the, them busting in uh, into there and uh, the uh, and, and getting into the bin with the gold is really pretty good. Yeah. There's some of the actions a little clumsy, like you know, uh, um, well, like one thing I noticed is when the editors screwed up is when Elon and and Keeler fire to blow the latches off. They do a crossfire because Avon shoots and it hits the it hits the latch on the opposite side. <laughs> then I'm sorry, they're crisscrossing their shots. It's like uh, oops, <laughs> it's really Crossing minor, beams. but. Uh, 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 and oh yeah, it's once they lift sorry. the lid, it's really obvious. It's just soft plastic. <laughs> it's not like anything tough, you know. I guess it's the future where Rubbermaid is as tough as Herculaneum. <laughs> that said, I do like when they they lift it up. The way there's that lift inside the box, it lifts the gold up into the shot, and then they tilt the camera down at the same time. That was a nice little bit of business. You see, just charcoal, just yeah, black rock. <laughs> Yeah, he got really excited about it too. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> yeah, but then like, well, Kilo leans in and then he gets jumped by some. They look like termites. <laughs> Land oh, on his jacket. Oh, oh he yeah, freaks the killers. Out. The killers. <laughs> he's like, get them off, get them off. And Avon's like going to use his hand. And he's like, no, not using your hand, you fool. And then yeah, Avon's like, what the hell are they? And they're like, the killers, they latch onto you and then they tunnel through everything and they don't stop unless you get them off. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 clearly I'm not the only one who thinks this is a, a laughably lame booby trap. Well, not <laughs> you know, only that, like... Goes, they go through you in 10 seconds. Well, <laughs> it takes 15 yeah, he to says get some them of them don't ignite right away. Well, apparently all of them don't <laughs> ignite right away. <laughs> I mean, but not only that, like, how do you disarm this booby trap? Like, if you're... Say you serve land on the other end and you get this box of black gold and you open it up and all of a sudden there's freaking <laughs> little mites on you. Like, how do you disarm this booby trap? You just got to get one of your disposable, you know, guards to do it for you, I guess. One of your mutoids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you have the the thing like an alien. They just keep eating through the ship when they <laughs> land on the floor. <laughs> you know, but stupid gimmick aside, I love the panic that Roy Kinnear plays there when they're on him and the way he's hyperventilating and it's over. He doesn't... You he still doesn't believe. No, no, check, check, check. Make sure they're all off. They're all off. Yeah, well, when he's uh, done, that, that's then Avon lit for me. Well, Avon just, just kind of like dumpsters him verbally. Where he's like, "Are there going to be any other dumb booby traps, <laughs> Kula?" <laughs> <laughs> the lame booby traps. Um, I also noticed that that uh, when this is another staging thing that where they sort of miss an opportunity is you know, when 
they um, you have the bit during that where there's that uh, officer or whatever in the uh, purser's office and uh, and uh, they're you know watching the monitor with the tape and then when Keeler falls back he gets up and they push in on the the cube video unit and you know it's not entirely obvious what's gone wrong there because the cube wasn't rotating at first when he turned on though it was later and you do see him plug a cord into it but the way the shot is done you don't see like the cord missing it doesn't register right away so it's not really immediately obvious that the thing is you know shut off mm-hmm. and so you, you, there's this moment where you know there's the the guy in the person's office there should be this uh-oh moment but he just conveniently is seen exiting as yeah. the actual security camera footage is seeing you know in a proper heist there'd be a moment where he almost sees the feed but something or someone distracts him like Sulin would make a noise or something you know <laughs> Uh, and they just miss those opportunities here that they were just, you know, and I'm sure it's because they had such, you know, short production schedule and nobody had the time to work out all this business. But the scriptwriter should have had that kind of stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, this is the one that seemed the most obvious missed opportunity to me because I noticed this too. And I made a note about it that, you know, this guard is leaving when the footage changes over <laughs> to the real footage. And it's like they kind of should have shot it in reverse. and had the guard coming in when the footage has swapped and then you have yeah. this moment of tension where it's like, is he going to see Avoning and Keela? And then he swaps the footage like right as the guy opens the door. Like that's how I would have done it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always that uh, the thing in a heist is always going to be, are they going to get caught? Are they going to get caught? Are they going to get caught? So you create all these moments where they almost do. And then somehow... You know, in somebody does something unexpected, you know, like one of the stone passengers knocks on the door, you know, or something uh, and that they miss that opportunity. Yeah, yeah there, there's a way actually in which like the the the, the way this episode goes is uh, there's almost none of that. And they just get kind of get found out in like this very, I don't know, not unceremonious, but like someone just, just like a dumb finds way. the d- God's body. Just, the they just vault. like do. They just like go about the whole thing like poorly, and they're just like, "Oh shoot!" Like someone just found us in the elevator. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a number of things there that are like that, where they, you know, they they don't try to clean up anything that's really obvious, you know. And uh, when when uh, Keeler shoots the doctor, they just leave the body <laughs> there. And I'm like, going, well, if that isn't going to set off an alarm, yeah. somebody's going to find this dead guy in the hallway. I mean, do you guys just assume? I, you know, it's like really, even no, if they just, just asleep. It, no time, you know, anything, you know. <laughs> it, it, those are the things that's like you know they didn't they didn't the guard they killed in the in the uh the the hold they just leave him there you know and they leave the lid off of things so i mean yeah you think you do anything would buy you an extra three seconds of you know anything anyway well so we get the scene where dana's like deathly ill and tarrant is quite possibly the worst actor i've ever seen because he's like oh no she's (laughs) dying and the doctor's like well uh you know i can give her some medication to ease the pain but you know, on Earth, uh, she's not going to be served because she's an alien. Then I was like, is Dana not human? I think it I was... I think alien is in, like, an illegal alien. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because so I was like, is Dana not human? But but, uh, but I have to say, I, I, I agree with you, but I, what I thought was hilarious, I think this is Taryn trying to pretend he's stoned. I, I don't know, because <laughs> I think he just sucks at acting, because then the doctor's like... I think it's a combination. Because the, the doctor's like, well, we can't expect the ship to go back, can we? And Tarrant just smiles and shakes oh. his head in like a, I hate <laughs> I, myself right now. No, 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 but yeah. there is that moment when the doctor says, uh, what, what's the line? He says, uh, 
uh, oh, you have to return to Xerox, and I can't see that happening. Can you? And Terrence behind him, and this grin spreads across his face. And then the doctor turns, and he obscures uh, Terrence from the camera. And when we reveal him again, he's gone back to the stone mask. And I love that little moment where you see he's like, aha, we got it. And then, oh, oh, I have to put it back. I have to start acting again. And that was a nice touch. I mean, yeah, I like. I actually thought maybe it was a decision of the actor to play it like he's a bad actor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sure it was. Yeah, I, I, I think the it worst, is as the well. most egregious line was when he goes, when, when the doctor's like, "We're not gonna be able to give her medicine on Earth," and, and Terry goes, "But then she'll die." <laughs> like, wow. Well, what I, I think it's like when people pretend like I had somebody critique something I'd written, and they said a stone person wouldn't talk like that. I said. You haven't been around enough real stone people. You've been watching Jeff Spicoli on Fast Times at Ridgemont High too much. It's <laughs> a movie we just watched, Chuck, where he does lines oh, of cocaine yeah. and then just like seems like completely copious amounts of cocaine. Copious amounts of cocaine and then he's just completely normal right off and he just walks around like a completely lucid and <laughs> functioning as a normal human being. It's like uh <laughs> Okay, so anyway, Dana's... Uh, well, I, Dana uh, foobars the whole thing because as soon as she sees Avon, she's like, Avon, I'm dying! <laughs> and then the doctor it, sees this opportunity to run away. Yeah, yeah, so why does Avon pull a gun on the doctor at the beginning? I mean, just let him take Dana to the damned airlock. It's an unnecessary bit of business. It all it does is lets Keeler shoot an unarmed man. Well, I it's think like, they need to put the gold onto the gurney is the thing. They're sneaking the gold off the ship on the gurney with Dana on it, but... At the same time, uh, that plan immediately falls apart and would have fallen apart, you know, anyway, because is there really a reason to put it on the gurney with Dana on it if if they're going to just dispose of the doctor or get rid of him or get him out of the way? I mean, they didn't necessarily yeah, well, I mean, need like to I kill said, him. They, they set up the whole thing with the gurney. They take it into the uh, into the vault, you know, uh, and into the hold. So clearly they're using the same one. So they've already had to have loaded it by this point. Yeah, see, that it, was so the it, thing is that I was wondering, like, why wouldn't they just let the doctor do this and take the gurney full of gold onto the ship and no one would be none the wiser, right? But no, instead Avon has to come bursting. He's like, this is yeah, a stick it's, up. It's just this awkward bit of business that just doesn't make sense. But yeah, Keeler shoots yeah, the unarmed guard. I, I didn't mind it. You know, I just kind of went with it. I do love that line from Keeler. We're going to walk right off this ship and no one's even going to stop us. And then it immediately, immediately the alarm goes, goes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, jinxed it there, pal. <clears throat> then they're running towards the airlock and uh, like, we've only got 10 <laughs> seconds before it automatically disconnects. Well, okay, I really like that last minute teleport, you know, the, the, as it's disconnecting. That's a good bit of, you know, action. But was Avon shot in the back and is he fine? Or he just that's what I thought. over his own feet to avoid being hit. <laughs> but, you know, y'all we, had some questions, but I just kind of went with it. I was just like, you know what? I'm just along for this ride. But right before that, I mean, Paul Darrow does full Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he goes, go, I'll cover you. And he oh, like yeah. puts the gun up with one arm and he closes one eye and he's shooting like one-eyed straight down the bell like just like a six shooter i'm like i see lens, what you're doing there no, paul lends credence, credence to that theory that um blake seven in character came up with uh, a few months ago which is that avon you know holding his gun like a six shooter is actually him covering his eyes from the light the yeah, gun emits. Sure. right <laughs> hey fans can justify anything <laughs> i mean they can justify anything but can they justify it well Yes. Debatably, I believe it. Do you? I seem to remember the first time you brought that theory up <laughs> no. on this podcast. You immediately said, "Yeah, no, but it doesn't make no, sense because no. nobody else does it." No, yeah, no, I don't believe it. 
Well, I actually bought it when they were shooting the latches off because he's shooting into an explosive device. That's the only time it ever makes sense for him to be shielding his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then Avon has Kilo contact his contacts. And I wonder who those could be. <laughs> oh, no. And Avon tells him what planet the meet on, what, Beta 5, I think it was? Or? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think Dana protests, like, it's Federation space. Dana, right? Dana Sulin protests yeah. and is like, it's that's Federation space. And everyone says, it's abandoned, empty, and on the edges, and no one's there. I highly doubt anyone's going to be there. <laughs> I really liked the the design of this planet. I mean, I know it was so just, just a rock I know quarry. it was just like a quarry it's slash. A rock yeah. quarry. But like, in the background, you could see like sort of dust blowing around. It looked like there was sort of a dust cloud in the background, mini one or whatever. So yeah, I mean, for a for a quarry, they did a pretty good job of making it look bigger. You know, though they found a really good place for the camera to be, so it doesn't feel like this this little pit. You know, there there's obviously some telltale trees poking up, which kind of ruins the illusion. But uh, there is <clears throat> that first pan where they go and find Avon and then turn with him to the other characters. That does sell this kind of wastelandy as- aspect to it, right? There is actually a line that we forgot that I want to mention earlier that the reason why they couldn't use the teleport to just teleport the gold off the space princess was because Orak points out that due to the processing that's been done to, to turn it gold, if they teleport it, it'll just turn to dust irrevocably. Did, did, you, did you notice that like little snarky laugh yeah. that Peter Tuttenham does yeah. when, he had, when Orak when, says this? Yeah, he's like, um, uh, no. <laughs> Orak's really just enjoying like taking the stuffing out of them on this episode. Orak's getting snarkier and snarkier every episode. Pretty sure it's all Avon's fault, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, Orak even sounds super snarky at the end of this, which we're going to get to in a little bit, where he's just like, ha you, you guys did all this for nothing. <laughs> but yeah, so, so it's Serverland. Oh it's no, price, shock price. of shocks. <laughs> like I said, the instant they showed a solid just shot of her heels getting out of the little transport i was like who else but serverland would wear completely impractical heels on this desolate wasteland planet (laughs) you just know that in the shots where you can't see her feet they've got plywood underneath her so she doesn't fall over (laughs) so she doesn't start like slowly sinking into the ground (laughs) avon i seem to be getting smaller Yeah, yeah, poor, 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 yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to you guys about this at the end of the series. <laughs> <laughs> well, so basically Avon and Servalan have a little bant. They have some bants. Avon has a gun to her head, but... She just kind of pushes aside, be careful with that gun, Avon. Right. Well, she, she, says, says, she says the guards are and were just ordered to kill shoot him her. First. Yeah, the, she's like the guards are ordered to kill you first. I'm like, but how would they know that he's going to kill her? Like, he could have just pulled the trigger right then when he had the gun against her head, and the guards would have been totally unprepared. Or like, you know, Sulin could have just killed her. Down. Yeah, Dana could have. Dana, Taren, oh, Dana should have. Like there. I said, she should have just popped a bullet right, <laughs> cacked her right there. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest problem with including Silverland in the story is that nobody shoots her. Just shoot her. <laughs> I mean, and we gave Tarot a lot of guff last week for not shooting Serverland. Yeah, but I mean, that also makes sense as well. But that makes sense, sort of. This one makes less sense. Yeah, I mean, normally I try and, I don't know, come up with some theories to why, but I don't know about this one. 
I, don't I do. Li- I do like the last shot of her as they're leaving, and you know, you. Uh, she's got that little smile on her face because she knows what we're about to learn from well, her. Act. <laughs> the Scorpio leaves Kilo behind, and, like, and he's like, "No, no, you can't leave me with her." And he's like, "Well, yeah, we can, and we will." So <laughs> and then he says, "Serverland, like, no, no, you can't leave me on this desolate planet. There's no food or water here." She's like, "Actually, I can, and I'm going to." <laughs> yeah, and well, the food and water doesn't matter to him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, I got the impression, right, or you get the impression that they're going to strand him there, but they actually just kill him. Yeah. yeah which yeah. is a more merciful thing to do. Yeah, mercy killing, really. But they get back to the ship and they open this legitimate, like, treasure chest of 10,000. It, it was like a briefcase. Uh, it was like a treasure chest. This treasure chest of 10,000, I don't know what unit this is, credits or dollars or whatever. It was Xerox money. Ten, because Billion, then they sorry. invalidate like wait 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 do you xerox it to make more no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah there's 10 billion and then and who is it sulin I mean, it's is the size like, of like four like american dollars like stapled together you know sulin is like <laughs> oh two million for each of us sorry villa i don't know who it was it villa, I think. dana actually I think... it's like two million for each of us because dana's villa. the one who tears it in half after she picks it up Villa is definitely like reaping the rewards in this scene. He's like, oh, yeah. Didn't do anything, getting all the rewards. And then Orak is like, <clears throat> uh, so it turns out uh, Z- uh, Zebrock has been uh, annexed. annexed into the Federation. And so all Zebrock currency is worthless now. They're like, damn. The Federation also now has the means to turn the black gold back into normal, normal gold. gold. And then Tarrant is like, great, we just risked our lives. Well, Sulin says we risked our knives for nothing, but then Tarrant is like, no, we risked our lives to make Serverland rich. And Dana kind of shoves this torn up uh, note into Avon's hand. And this well, this they throw, scene, like the money at Avon. Sulin throws it. Yeah, Sulin throws a big handful of it. Yeah. And it kind of rains down on him. But this scene where Avon just kind of smiles in like pain. Shakes his fist. He, like, he's crumpling the money in his fist and he's just smiling, but it's a smile of, ha ha, I freaking hate myself right now. Okay, so, so I've seen this image before dozens of times probably. And what I always thought this was was like Paul Darrow looking into the camera, his his chin resting on his like closed fist with a smile on his face. No. Now that I know what it is, it's even better. <laughs> yeah, no, because he's he's clearly like he's he's laughing at, at the irony, and at the same time, you see his all the tensions in his hand that you know he's like ah, he wants to scream, but he can only laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's great. It's, all my fault. It's, it's decidedly an awesome moment for Paul Darrow. <laughs> Yeah, there there are some people who think this is when Avon totally loses his mind. <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't what, blame him. Knowing what happens next week, knowing the basic plot outline of Orbit, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> it's like I just made Serverland rich, and I got nothing. I didn't even get a snog. <laughs> Let alone a bunch what of paper, Tarrant though. Got. <laughs> he got the experience, and isn't that all worth it? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> is it? Nah, I don't know. I would argue no. <laughs> well, so that, yeah, that's the that's, end of the episode. That's gold. That's gold. <laughs> solid <laughs> gold, baby. It's, it's solid gold for a Series D episode. I think it's one of the best episodes of Series D. I do Up as there well. With Sand, I do as Head well. Headhunter. 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great story. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's it's got the television production problems that sort of hamper it. But given, you know, when it was made and, you know, what the limitations it's made under, it's actually pretty damned good. I find it really watchable. And some of the other episodes uh, I find somewhat less watchable. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like you mentioned, it's the it's the only real time Blake seven has done a heist, a heist in, 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 in this literal of a, of a, of a way. And there are some really great like scenes in it where the, the tension is high and like you're you're totally invested. I don't know. I mean, like I was at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's like I said, I was always so attracted to it because you know I've I've done a lot of uh, poking around in that particular genre. So uh, I remember when I watched this, it really grabbed me. And so when you guys had the list of episodes that you still had uh, no uh, guests on, I jumped on this one because I went, yes, yes, there's the one I want to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> It's right in my sweet spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really enjoyed watching this. I was super invested in it, uh, you know, which has been pretty rare for Series D yeah, episodes. If, if I had one general comment, I just wish it was a slightly better use of the, the whole group. It's a little, you know, I mean, at least Sulin gets something to do and has some dialogue, you know. and But it just sort of felt like, especially with Villa, that he was sort of underutilized. Even even to be the one who should be warning them, this isn't going to go the way you want. Even right. if he stays on the mm-hmm. ship and won't participate. Uh, I thought that was a miscalculation. I mean, that, you know. that's sort of a problem, I, I guess, with Blake 7 as a whole. You know, right for, for, from episode one, that was that was the case. And it's still the case now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's something you have to try really hard to do, and and, and to talk about that uh that de- lost in development hell heist movie I worked on, it's you know I had this problem. They had this huge cast of characters. I think there are like five thieves and these other characters. It's like this huge cast, and trying to keep it balanced and make sure everybody is involved and has a, an important role to do is really a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm sure on a TV schedule it's probably nearly impossible, you know, to do it. So to give, you know, the writers some credit there. Okay, Colin Davis, I'll give you a pass. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I mean, I, I guess that points to sort of a difference between a, a movie and a, a TV show. Right. Which is that, you know, on TV, it's, it's, it's a little, I think, more forgivable or you're okay with it if, like, there's an episode where a character doesn't do much because, you know, okay, you know, maybe next episode or, you know, sometime later, this character is going to have their episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in a movie, maybe maybe it's more of a balancing act. Yeah, yeah. I think also writers have a tendency to write uh, for the characters they like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, I mean that's a natural thing. I mean, like when I'm writing stuff, I always try to go back through when I when I reread it. I go, who really should be saying this line? You know, and I try to say, okay, even if I love that character or that actor. You know, you go, no, no, that really belongs to, you know, Dana or that should belong to. Okay, no line belongs to Tarrant unless it's bad. But uh, (laughs) I mean, to an extent, that's why Series A was a little questionable because Terry Nation wrote every single episode and because Boucher edited every single episode. So, you know, Terry's going to give lines to his favorite characters who appear to be Blake and Jenna. You know, Chris is going to weasel in some lines for Avon and then. For the whole first season, Callie and Gan are just left you know, standing yeah. metaphorically with their pants down, not doing anything in the corner because, <laughs> like, Terry and Chris are the ones controlling the show and the writing for the characters they like, which is yeah, why I think Series B was a massive improvement because we get all these other 
writers coming in and not, you know they're all going to obviously write for different characters that they yeah, like it, and want to do it, something with it is a problem it's like when um j michael strusinski decided to write all of babylon 5 himself after the first year every script feels like a second draft <laughs> nothing ever feels like a polished draft it's it's always clumsy you know it's mm-hmm. it's you know you have to have uh, when you're grinding out that level of material, you have to have a staff. It's just not possible for one person to do it, you know. Right. Um, As Terry Nation found out firsthand. As Terry Nation found out literally three weeks in, he's like, <laughs> oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because you can see that that, that uh, Blake 7, when it starts off, has the typical problem that a lot of shows do is that you come up with a concept and you come up with a few stories to sell it. And then you burn through those easy, the ideas that came to you easily after four or five or six episodes. And then you're like, oh, now what? Yeah. You know, and uh, and I, I had somebody uh, I've argued this with people and they say, oh, well, why don't they plan more? Because if you don't put a lot of effort into something that may not fly. So if you even if you write a pilot, you don't write the uh, outline for the whole season, because if the pilot doesn't get picked up, that work you've just done on, on plotting out those other episodes is now wasted effort. Right. So it's this sort of catch 22. You know, you really should plan it out, but you can't plan it out. Because if it doesn't fly, you have to work on the next thing. So it's uh, it's a you know, television's a really tricky thing. It, I think people don't realize, you know, they don't understand how the production process works. It's very easy to be critical. Oh, they should have done this. Well, yeah, you try doing this in four weeks <laughs> and make all these things line up. You know, you know, uh, feature films. You have the luxury that I, I think you know people consider it a rush if you took you six months to write the first draft. <laughs> you know, on a TV show, that's more like six weeks from the idea to the being on the stage right and and sort of speaking i guess of all this production type stuff um i think in an uh email maurice you mentioned well you definitely mentioned how much you liked the heist aspect of, of this episode um but you said you know if there were if blake seven were to ever get rebooted you know and you had a chance to work on it or contribute to it um this is a direction you would want to take it right this sort of heist Direction. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like the format because I think it, it, it you know, they, they do this in other episodes. Like I said, like power play, there's that whole same thing. We have this, we have to get into this thing and there's all these steps we have to do. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a good way to showcase characters and it's kind of, it, it's a good way to, you know, use the, the funny dialogue and uh, you can create a lot of tension and you can do it on a fairly low budget without these big, you know, epic vistas and stuff. And I, I just thought it was an interesting way because I felt like the show is a little rudderless in this season. And if they'd gone forward, I think they could have used this kind of thing. Not that they're always trying to steal something every week, but that kind of basic mission impossible template, you know, going there, you have the, the, you plan the gimmick out, then you have to improvise when it doesn't go right. You know, just no more serviland. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe a break in, if not necessarily like a heist. Yeah, yeah, it's what they call a caper, you know, mm-hmm, sure. it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. So because uh, there's some really brilliant, uh, you know, um, caper movies out there where they, they have to figure out some really clever way to get past something. In fact, I forget I was reading about this There's a film where in the caper they silence an alarm. I think it might be Bob LaFlember. I'm trying to remember. I've watched so many heist movies where they to stop this alarm from going off they drill a hole in the alarm box and they spray spray foam inside <laughs> it which muffles it and apparently somebody some years ago actually copied that and did that to a real alarm <laughs> <laughs> uh, truth is stranger than fiction does art yeah. mimic life <laughs> well yeah. like does life mimic art <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, I know you guys are going to do the uh, the kind of you got. I think you talked about doing a final episode. We're going to talk about where people what they thought the show where the show should go mm-hmm. if they went forward. So I think uh, I would love to contribute to that when you get there. I don't know if you want people to write in for that or or call in or how you want to handle that. We've uh, actually been have typically having people uh, write in, but actually uh, it might be interesting if people want to like come up with a recording and come up and, with a recording and, and send it into us. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. That way, you don't have to read it and wear your voices out. <laughs> oh, we wear our voices out every week, yeah. recording two podcasts a week, sometimes and, three, <laughs> sometimes three, and sometimes these things go on for hours and hours and hours. You know, one week yeah, we recorded so. for like, recorded. I think when we recorded Rescue with Making Blake Seven, we sat there for two and a half hours to three hours recording, and, and then still recorded do Trust Your after Doctor that, after right. that. And at the end of it, I was like, I feel like my throat is on fire. <laughs> Um, but we well, shouldn't you just forget. need to drink like Villa does, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Maybe I should start drinking on this podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm drinking shouldn't... right now, but it's coffee. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we should bring some wine to the final episode. <laughs> we shouldn't forget uh, how Terry Nation would. How Terry Nation would do, would do gold. Gold. He wouldn't. You think gold. he wouldn't? Gold. <laughs> Controversial hey, it, it, opinion. He'd admission to destiny. You know, <laughs> I think he would have done it. Uh, you know, I don't think it would have been the same script. But you know, I mean, uh, I'm going to go with the controversial thing Keon said a couple weeks ago that Servland wouldn't appear in this script at all. I think I think you're right about that. Yeah, the only I, note. I'm not a big. I don't know a lot of Terry Nation stuff outside of Blake Seven, <laughs> but. I, that was sort of my impression too. I don't think Serverland would have been as front and center uh, had he been there, or even in there at all. I think it would have been. I think Keeler would have been the ultimate twist. There would have been something about him we find out at the end, you know, but not no no Serverland. I think Travis could have been in this if because I mean we've been talking about this for, uh, for a couple of weeks of like this alternate series D where Travis and Servalan keeps trying to bring back are, Travis right, or like where <laughs> Travis and Servalan are not working together. And then, you know, mid season they team up or again or something like that. Yeah. And it's but not even it, out of the realm of possibility that Travis would survive. I mean, Servalan survived the liberator freaking blowing up yeah. in space. Travis, Travis just fell down a tube. So yeah, Oh, I think that's a pretty interesting observation because when you look at, especially early Travis uh, in in Series A, you know he did do these elaborate plans to try to lure Blake, and so it would be right in his you know zone to do something like that, except for right. the make the money angle, you know, at the end because he doesn't care about that. Um, I mean, I can almost see Keela being replaced by Travis, and then you know that's why he calls Avon an old friend, and Avon's like we're not old friends because you know Dana, Sulin. Tarrant, none of these people actually know right. who he is. Only Villa and Avon. Only Villa and Avon would know, and that's why Villa might stay behind on the ship is because he's skeptical of you know his Travis. Travis's, you know, quote change of heart, unquote, and Avon's going along with it because he thinks then, maybe this is a way to get to Servaland. Right, and then having Servaland kill Travis at the end instead of having him just fall down a tube. <laughs> that could have been so yeah. good. That would have been a big twist. And I could totally see Terry Nation doing that, like if Terry Nation knew this was going to be the final season and, you know, we're coming up at the end of the season, Terry Nation coming in, bringing back Travis as his great, like, crowning achievement, and then at the end of the episode, Servaland kills him. Like, to just start wrapping up loose ends definitively, like, tra- yep. you know, Travis is dead now by Servaland's hand. Yep. 
Yeah, those are the fun things when you have those kind of unexpected betrayals and stuff. Those are fun. I, I do want to add one thing I forgot to mention is that, you know, it's funny when they went to all the trouble in Series A at the end of Series A to introduce Orac and his oracular abilities and then which they immediately backpedaled on because you can't have him predicting the future. But they're doing this complicated thing and nobody consults Orac to ask him the odds or anything. <laughs> it's just, he just happens to be turned on so he can make snarky comments. Yeah, I guess they just leave him <laughs> on now. They're just like, well, we'll just leave Orac on because he's funny well you can always tell when they they set it up because you could hear the the orac noise in the background all under the scene <laughs> he's conveniently off in any of this something is that little <laughs> i'm going ah orac's gonna say something in this scene that actually reminds me of something i wanted to say that sound design in this episode was great because they gave the the scorpio guns and they gave keeler's guns different gun sounds that they're like similar because they are similar in like construction and make but they're like noticeably different and i thought that was like a really good creative choice yeah i love the endless you know fingers on chalkboard music that plays whenever we're on the ship <laughs> forgot about that i also and then, like whenever the purser's door opens you can hear it coming in <laughs> we didn't mention it either but I, I i love the shot where the scorpio is flying alongside the the space princess mm-hmm. and there it looks like they're coming straight towards the camera Kind of like the shot that used to be in the opening sequence about the Liberator flying straight towards the camera. Yeah, Yeah, these these shots are, you know, okay, there's a little wobbliness on the models in some shots, but, uh, you know, it's only the CSO compositing of them on the starfields that that makes those shots not as great as they could be, you know, and, well, I understand why that is. Yeah. Damn CSO. Damn CSO. Everything again. To you Americans listening, we mean blue screen slash green screen. Isn't CSO like a slightly different process? Oh, Similar it's, but it's different. Like it, it's a chroma key type process. Yeah. It's just yeah, it's it's all still built a, a color replacement process. Yeah. What about that time they used yellow on Doctor Who, I think, and it like came out really badly because it started, it, st- yeah, well, it started like fringing all the people's faces <laughs> at the edges. On, on video, you can key on any color. You know, it's just a color value. On film, there's a particular reason about why they use blue, which I won't get into because I'd probably bore everybody with all the technical aspects of that. I mean, I'm actually curious to hear, but. Well, when we hang up on this, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> okay. I'll explain it to you, Lucy. So anyway, yeah, so I, I, th- I want to sum up on this thing. I think for me in this episode, which I really enjoy, it's probably my favorite Series D episode just for entertainment value, even though I think there are other stories that have more, you know, uh, meat to them. For me, the pluses are the complicated caper, the character of Keeler and the actor playing him, uh, that Sulin gets stuff to do, and Orak kicking the stuffing out of them with his reveal. And to me, the minuses are Servaland, the clumsy direction and editing, which tend to undermine the dramatic tension. And the criminal, pun intended, underuse of Villa. And that's that's my that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with all of that. I think this is a good story. Actually, it's a great story. Definitely top three of the season. Uh, and I think, but I think there are definitely some wasted opportunities. I think is the phrase. Yeah, you know, I I, I agree. I, I really like this one. Uh, I do like Sam better. And I'm gonna say, I think if this episode were put up against. A series A, B, or C, or like mixed in with those episodes, or somehow you know part of those seasons. I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much. I think I enjoyed this one because we've been getting a lot of not great episodes uh, recently. Yeah, I, I would. I would put it kind of 
like uh, on the level, if you put it that way, to like a mission of de- mission, uh, bleh, mission of des- mission, mission, of de- mission, destiny? mission of destiny. I, I don't, I don't want to get, uh, yeah, I don't want to get that middle word right. That two letter word, <laughs> mission to destiny. You know, it's kind of that thing. It's that little oddball off format thing, but it's kind of entertaining in its own right. But I think it's better than mission to destiny. Oh, yeah. I, uh, you well, know, I would I say so. I mean, I would, I would have so. to watch them like together. It's been a while Not since I saw mission like, to destiny. At the same time, but. <laughs> But I remember thinking that episode was pretty mediocre. Uh, well, you didn't like five four. What was what was it? Five four one two four. <laughs> you didn't like that reveal. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an email this week. If you'd like to join us in uh, responding to it, Maurice. Oh sure, I'll be happy to critique other people's critiques. <laughs> uh, from Sergeant Drano, who will be joining us next week for the third of three crossovers in a row. Whew. Wow, I feel envious. <laughs> anyway, from Sergeant Jane subject line gold. Hey guys, so gold, or should we call this one Oceans 7? A heist episode, yeah, it's a trope, but heists do tend to make for some entertaining viewing, don't they? I really like seeing the Scorpio docked to the nation-esquely named Space Princess. <laughs> Scorpio's bigger than I thought. Sulin gets to flex her gunslinger muscles in this one, fast drawing on two guards, after which Avon clarifies Sulin killed them both. Noise. It's fun how Villa gets to play the heavy for a bit. Keeler seems like he's afraid of this mysterious Villa guy. Did you buy that Avon and Sulin were dead at all? I bet not. I f- <laughs> no. <laughs> I found it hard to take notes while the actual heist was happening because it was so engaging. Good stuff. Love Tarrant and Dana's drugged up acting. Keeler's a pretty complex character. Seems affable and harmless, but doesn't hesitate to shoot that doctor in cold blood. I like it. Avon really seems to enjoy gunning down those guards. See attached. Pretty sweet moment when he almost gets sucked out of the transfer tube. See attached. I love the turnabout at the handoff. I suspect Serverland would be involved. I suspected Serverland would be involved, but I didn't expect that Avon had already figured that out and actually gets the drop on her. And watching Avon and Serverland flirt with each other, ugh, it's so delicious and skeevy at the same time. It makes me cringe and laugh. See attached. Tarrant, I've never seen currency of that size. Lol, those are some pretty big pieces of paper, aren't they? <laughs> but in the end, they all get completely schooled by Servland, all that effort, and they end up with nothing and make Servland richer, and we get Avon descending into insane laughter. Could this be the moment when he finally loses it at the rest of the way? See attached. What other series would take their characters in a direction like this? I think this is a real cracker of an episode. Full marks, 7 out of 7. However, due to the newly enacted Federation laws, those 7s are now worth a start. Sergeant Station 7 the door. How big are wallets on Xerox? Yeah, I mean, given the, like, the <laughs> size of those bills, like the physical size of those bills. <laughs> well, they're big money. It's big money. <laughs> These aren't Gs. They're, uh, what's the next letter up? Gigabyte. <laughs> H. Grand. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's kind of weird. I, I, I'm imagining that this currency system makes their bills like physically bigger as the denomination gets bigger. <laughs> I think that used to be the. I think that's still the case in some countries. I mean, you know, I mean, U.S. Yeah, but money not to is, this extent. <laughs> Nobody's walking around with giant squares that are bigger than their face, right? <laughs> well, it, it, it prevents you from carrying them around because people will mug you for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it becomes really difficult to hide. I, would, anyway. I wonder what's printed on that money or if it's something that was already laying around that they just printed large or, or you know, uh, I know like, you know, one of the funny things in the history of Hollywood, if you look at old movies and a lot of movies still, the money they would use was actually Mexican money because there were laws against duplicating or even creating any kind of thing that looks like a real bill. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if those things are some existing printed something or other, you know, I don't know. 
actually. I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I mean, these also look, I think, different enough from... Well, actually, I don't really know what British money looks like, <laughs> although I've seen it before. Well, not giant squares, I didn't do that much. I think they're multicolored. I don't even remember. Some countries have plastic money. Yeah, it would be funny if it was plastic money, money and Dana tried to tear it and it just wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> well, even still, it's like really difficult to tear American bills. Yeah, I don't is. know if well, you've tried, but American bills are like partially not, fabric. Yeah, it's like a fabric paper kind of hybrid. Yeah, not yeah. Impossible, not plastic though, though unfortunately. Yeah, the nice thing about plastic is that it doesn't get dirty. You can just run it under the sink and clean <laughs> it if it does. So. Anyway, yeah, thank you for yeah, emailing us, Sergeant Drano. Uh, a lot of good insight. Yes, I, there. I have no comments except that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except that, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, we got three emails to respond to this week. They're all rather long, so the responses may not be as extensive, be as, as, extensive as usual. Are. But we want to make sure that we get them in here. Two of them are from people who have never reached out to us before. This first one, the subject line, Zenith Podcast. Hello, I really like the Zenith Podcast and will miss them when you've finished. I only came in halfway through, so I'm looking forward to listening to series one and two. I also listened to the Blake Seven and Character podcast, and I enjoy the contrast between the two older British blokes who have been familiar with the series forever and you guys being much younger American and coming to the show for the first time. I'll be especially interested to hear what you say about Sand as it and Star One are my two favorite episodes. There's an audio interview on YouTube where Jacqueline Pierce discusses what happened when Stephen Pacey found out she had just moved next door to him and how Tanthley wrote in into her script. See Sirloin Jacqueline Pierce interview Blake Seven on channel Maxi Power 2008. My favorite character is a villain, Callie, or Avon and Serverland, depending on what sort of mood I'm in. Have you heard the rumor that Terry Nation was hoping that Orac could be aggressively marketed like the Daleks were and was therefore disappointed that the final Orac prop didn't have any legs? The mind bloggles. I've listened to all the Big Finish Blake 7 audios, and as you'd hope, they attempt to fill in and flesh out many of the character traits and backstories that are missing from the original series, such as Jenna's smuggling background, Villa's early life, various relatives appear, such as Jen's brother... Janice's brother, I assume you mean. Villa's father and the like. Villa's father? There's an awesome scene in one story where Villa is emboldened by means of a telepathic link and flirts brazenly with an outraged Servland, except that my brother ruined it by saying that it sounds like sounded like an argument in an old people's home. I also recommend two books in particular. Firstly, Liberation by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore, which has in-depth intellectual and cultural analyses of every episode and includes such observations as Nation reportedly intended Bounty to be a comment on the late 90s, 70s peacekeeping activities in the Middle East making the portrayal of the Amagons as gangster Arab types even more unfortunate. <laughs> Secondly, quote, Maximum Power, and quote, from MIWK Publishing, which is full of non-intellectual observations, for it's instance... Milk, as John pointed out. But it's fine, go on. But it's a W, not an L. Yeah, but I think it's pronounced as Milk. That's, that's, that's what John said. For instance, in Voice from the Past, when Travis is disguised as the bandaged Shivan... They note that Travis is so stupid, he's even put his fake eye over his good eye. How can he see anything? <laughs> and re-assassin Cancer's death scene is not only the highlight of the series, but of the BBC's output since its inception ever, ever, ever. And there's a lot of hilarious bullshit, including a summary of the Japanese remake of the show, which allegedly features this super fun oppression squad, <laughs> whose members include Man Woman, Jen, Mr. Gan, with an exploding head and the voice of a baby in the evil computer, Oraculatron. <laughs> I know you have been spoiled on the final episode, but I've seen it countless times and I still find it shocking. So brace yourselves. Thanks for the podcast. Cheers, Maxi Melbourne. P.S. When Dodo got a cold in the arc, it was sadder than when Gan died. 
I'm still not over Gan's death. Yeah, you are. It's just <laughs> no, a meme now. It's just a meme to be not over <laughs> Gan's death. Just a meme. Maybe, no, I don't think so. But I've actually I've heard of this book, um, Liberation. Mm-hmm. Spacefall podcast often references this book, um, and it sounds really cool. Uh, like men, like pretty much every Blake Seven publication, you'd have to import it over here. But right, yeah, it sounds sounds really interesting. I didn't hear the rumor that Terry Nation was hoping to market ORAC aggressively. That's a new no. one. Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. But like you said, it's a rumor, so rumors unsubst- un- unsubstantiated. Rumor of death. You also you also have to think like, is ORAC really marketable or as marketable as the Daleks? Would it have ever been? <laughs> no matter what it was designed to look like, probably not. Interesting hearing your opinion on the Blake 7 audios. We'll only be listening to one for this podcast, so... As of right now, I mean, we left it open, you know, as to whether or not we were going to continue on, but it's probably, you know... <laughs> it's, uh, it's... It's probably we're just going to watch the no. way ahead and, and be done with listen it. Listen to the way listen, ahead. Yeah, listen to it. Maybe we should watch that Japanese remake. <laughs> Otherwise, thank you for the email, Maxi. Really appreciate hearing from you in the final waning days of our podcast. Our next email comes from John of Making Blake 7. Subtitled to Sarcophagus Review slash Gisette Simon. Hi guys, I've been enjoying your ongoing voyage through Series D. However, there was one aspect of your recent Sarcophagus review that I feel I should correct, namely Gisette Simon and her feeling about Dan and Blake 7 in general. Before I read the rest of this, I want to say that most of what you're about to say we actually got with RG in our episode on sand. I think this arrived like the weekend sand went out, so... It didn't make it into that episode, but anyway. When Gisette Simon appeared at the recent Cygnus Alpha convention, she told us that she was never fond of the part of the, that she has never found the part of Dana racially problematic, and she never felt that the writing was sexist or racially stereotyped. Not at the time, and not now. In her own words, we were all part of the crew, and we were all equals. Gisette was a little exasperated because she has never complained about sexism or racism racism in Blake 7 and she doesn't know where these rumors started and she also pointed out that Dana was not written as a quote black character unquote and Gisette hates the term quote black actress unquote Gisette spoke very fondly of her time on the series she said Blake 7 is a very special place in my affections the only reason she has never revisited Dana is because she always wants to move forward and embrace new challenges rather than looking back and revisiting a part she played almost 40 years ago the amazing success she has had in her character suggests that she made the right choice I just wanted to set you straight on this as Gisette is keen to squash these rumors and you don't want to annoy Dana she's been known to hold a grudge kinky face cheers John making Blake 7 cheers John yeah thank you definitely for that um, correction. correction yeah don't want to do what maurice was talking about in this episode spreading rumors of rumors of rumors and misinformation right. so that's greatly appreciated uh from you john but like i said i think we cleared up some of that in our episode on sand which you may not have listened to when you sent this email but it's always good to no but we I mean we didn't point out her, yeah, her comments it, at the convention and it's always like good to reinforce uh with actual comments by the actress so thank you very much and <laughs> the next email is actually also about that <laughs> A subject line about Gisette Simon and Blake Seven Sand podcast. This one's about sand. Hi, guys. This person was also at Cygnus Alpha. John and this person may have run into each other and huh. may not have even known it. That would be really weird. Hi, guys. I'm enjoying your podcast. Have listened to the most of them by now. In sand, there's been a question about Gisette Simon, which I can answer after being on her panel at Cygnus Alpha con- uh, 4.0 convention this October. The question was, why didn't she do any big finish? 
Also, there was a talk that she didn't like her part in Blade 7, and that's the reason that she didn't do conventions, etc. She answered it at a panel, which was absolutely wonderful. I wrote a bit about it here, and there's a link, which we'll put in the show notes. She said that, one, she loves Blake Sevens hurt when people imply that she hates it for some reason. Two, she never repeats any of her parts. She wants to move on to new challenges after being done. That's why she would never do Blake Seven Big Finish or reprise any of her other parts. Three, she is a very private person. That's why she's not comfortable with conventions in general. People expect convention guests to chat about their private lives. But she gave abs- she gave absolutely gorgeous, warm and honest talk at Cygnus Alpha while keeping it mostly about her work. It's her second Blake Seven convention. The first one was a year ago. She might do more after this, I hope. Hope that helps and all the best. Natalia. Wow, we got two emails from Cygnus Alpha <laughs> about Gisette Simon. But it's all, like I said, it's always good to reinforce with reinforce the correct information. I yeah. Guess, is the point here. Yeah. So thank you. So thank you. And we'll put a link to the writing that you linked. And thank you for reaching out, Natalia. Always good to hear from new people, too, yep. on the podcast. Kind of weird that we got an email from both John and Natalia about Cygnus Alpha, but you know. Guess it was right time, right place, right person. Basically, we're asking for our fans to, and you know, even if you're not a fan of Zenith, you can you can email us, I guess. Yeah, anyone, email, uh, Facebook, Twitter, or, or leave comment a comment on the, on the website. website. Just you know, kind of pitching your fantasy version of Blake Seven, like fantasy football, but for Blake Seven. Uh, right. So. Want? playing the characters who would you have doing scripts script editing producer whatever you want story ideas story you, you ideas can, you can set this in like you know an alternate history where series e happened i guess yeah. or like a, a reboot or something you know you just you can do whatever you or want like from the 80s like in the era of blake seven if you could cast anyone who would do it if you could draw from any era who would you cast yeah you can do whatever you want with it really <laughs> like it's very open-ended and it's open-ended intentionally right and on our final episode which we'll be releasing the week after the way ahead we'll be releasing one final wrap-up episode for zenith on that episode we'll be going over people's fantasy kind of blake seven we'll be pitching our own as well yeah and just reflecting on the and podcast just reflecting probably. on the podcast and the show and looking back fondly on what we've done <laughs> looking back fondly on how we burned ourselves out <laughs> So again, the four sort of channels you can yeah. you can pitch your idea on or email, mm-hmm. Facebook, Twitter, and leaving a comment on the website. And uh, <laughs> unless any of us have any other thoughts on this episode, I think that uh, that's, that's it for me. Wraps it up. So, Maurice, if there's a uh, anything you'd like to plug, shamelessly plug, uh, that yeah, you're working I'm gonna, on, I'm gonna, this is I'm your opportunity. On, well, yeah, I'm uh, working on a podcast with my friend Michael Komet, who does the absolutely fascinating Star Trek Fact Check blog, which has been uh, quoted uh, and uh, recommended by Den of Geek and the American Press Institute twice. Um, wow. And he has been doing this blog for some years. He's uh, sort of a TV historian. He's been going through Gene Roddenberry's papers at UCLA and very intricately going through them. So we've been reading the actual production documents from the original Star Trek, and we are going to be doing a podcast that is so meticulously researched. <laughs> we have end notes that are pages long on this, and we cite everything we're citing. We tell you exactly what document or source it comes from. It's a huge amount of work, but we're hoping it'll be really interesting because we're getting a lot into uh, what uh, the general television history is. We're trying to set 
the show in the context of what the television and cultural landscape were of the period. And which is, you know, a lot of people talk about these shows, but they don't know what was going on or what the state of the art in TV was, which mm-hmm. is something like uh, when you guys talk about, like comparing something to Doctor Who, what was going on, like what was going on in British TV at the time. If you don't know what was happening in 60s television, really, and what the trends were, you don't understand, like necessarily why the show is the way it is. And uh, it's been really fascinating. It's fun to poke into these documents and see the actual thinking and see this snarky memos going back and forth or Gene Roddenberry chewing out two of the writers for uh, being too snarky in their memos because then he has to rewrite them before he can share them with the writer (laughs) and stuff like that. And uh, it's just really fascinating stuff. So, yeah, but uh, we don't have a title for it yet. So uh, when I do, I'll let you know. But but anybody who's interested in the subject should check out the Star Trek fact check blog. If you Google it, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. He's done a bunch of deconstructions, like really deep dives into a lot of the uh, the mythology of the show and uh, where certain books that claim to be experts on this subject ain't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so sounds, that's, that's my plug. Yeah, sounds really cool. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not even like a Star Trek fan. I've, I've never watched Star Trek, but uh, that sounds really, really interesting. Maybe Something I will start. check out if I ever watch the show. Star yeah. Trek podcast when... <laughs> Well, yeah, the thing we, we were trying to do is we wanted to come up with a podcast that hadn't been boldly beaten to death like every other podcast yeah, had sure. gone before. So we decided, okay, let's come at it from a real historical research perspective and let's, you know, let's just come at it that way because it's it's like we listen and we bump into these other podcasts and other commentaries and people basically make up crap. Every week somebody makes up some thing where they misremember. It's like a game of telephone. They repeat a story and they change it again and getting to what really happened is so difficult sometimes right. mm-hmm. I mean, and i'm sure some of that happens the more popular shows i'm sure there's a similar amount of mythology around doctor who yeah and I mean, we're definitely yeah. guilty of yeah, that Yeah, we're guilty of it for sure it, yeah whereas i think like with blake seven uh there's probably less of that because it's you know not as widely seen and that's why one of the reason i really appreciate the making blake seven twitter feed and everything because uh, i love seeing this stuff i love the behind the curtain you know look into how things happened and why they happened right mm-hmm like, why don't we see Travis's face all through that episode? <laughs> oh, because it's not him. <laughs> yeah. But well. somebody answer me this. Why don't they put a bullet in Servaland's head? <laughs> mm, the age-old question, why didn't they shoot <laughs> Servaland? <laughs> the question that should never be asked. Haunted the world since 81. <laughs> oh, well, that all sounds very interesting. So thank you for... Thank you. And thanks for having yeah. me on. I was quite uh, honored to be invited. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, enj- I really right. enjoyed it. And uh, forward to hearing uh, the, the, the summing up episodes and catching up and what you think of the show at the end. Oh, it's going to be interesting. Three more weeks. Yep. Yes. Three more episodes. All right. Closing in on us. And uh, if you would like to email us, any of you dear listeners, uh, you can reach us at the thedoctoraddictedvegetable.com. Questions, comments, concerns, angry rants, love letters, your thoughts on solid gold. You can find us gold, on YouTube gold. at Decorative Vegetable. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play at Zenith, a Blake 7 podcast. Be sure to leave a rating if you like the show. Check us out on Facebook. Trust your doctor. Like us on Facebook. Also check us out on Twitter at TYD Podcast and follow us on Twitter. And like we mentioned, next time we're going to be joined again by Sergeant Reno to discuss Orbit. But until then, orbit the end. <laughs>